Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So we keep going. It doesn't ever stop. This is the best part about practice, is that uh, once you get the taste for it, uh, you can't stop. Because the pleasure of not holding on to all the things that we hold on to is so much greater than the pleasure of anything that you can consume. Drugs, alcohol, romantic love, None of it's as good. It's all great. Drugs are great. Alcohol's great. (laughs) Romantic love's great. But at the same time, um, we need to be able to trust something really fundamental in our lives. And the thing about uh, the practice we're doing, the movement in the morning, the stillness of sitting, then the um, walking meditation, which is so nice outside, Um, And then again, another period of sitting. It goes on and on like this. Um, It teaches us how to trust something really fundamental uh, in our experience. And it's very quiet. And you just have to put your body there. And your breath there. And the rest will take care of itself. Last night I talked about meditation practice as silent illumination. It's very quiet, but in the silence, there's an ability to illuminate what's passing right in front of us, or inside of us, or around us. So, I thought this afternoon I could tell a little story that I hope we can unpack together, have a break, or maybe not a break, but have some time to discuss it. And uh, so I'm going to talk for a little bit and then we can have some time to share our experience of this teaching and also what it's been like for us uh, sitting still with our crazy minds. So, one day, uh, Master Ma was unwell. The superintendent of the temple asked him, Teacher, how's your health been in the last few days? And Master Ma responded, Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Well, that's the whole story. Do you want to hear it again? (laughs) One day, Master Ma was unwell. (coughs) So maybe some background. Uh, we're in a temple. So the practice we're doing this afternoon, this is all monastic practice. The fact that lay people are doing this is a brand new phenomenon. So here we are, sitting and walking, and imagine that we're in a temple, but the teacher of the temple, Master Ma, is very unwell. Now they say here unwell, but actually he was dying. And he had only maybe some hours, possibly a day to live. And Master Ma, just because you may not know, is the archetype of, is a Tang Dynasty Zen master, who's the archetype of the very fierce, strong, machismo style of Zen that you read about in comic books. Mm -hmm. So imagine this very fierce, strong, um, 
enthusiastic teacher. He was so energetic that apparently he had a hundred successors. That's how much energy he was putting into working with his students. A hundred, I can't even imagine having a hundred um, close students. Imagine having a hundred very close relationships that you're working with all the time. So anyways, this is how powerful this master was. And here you have this master dying. And the superintendent of the temple, the head of the temple, comes to him and says, Master, how have you been feeling these days? Which is kind of a strange question, isn't it? Could you imagine somebody's dying and you say to them, how have you been feeling the past few days? And Master Ma says, Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. So I hear in this a question for us. First question is, what's the difference between us and Master Ma? And secondly, um, <clears throat> how are you doing in your own practice, for real? Not your idea of, oh, I'm a spiritual person, or I have good ethics, or, but how are you really doing uh, in your heart? So, the practice that I, I hope to share with you this weekend is about how to find a center in your own heart, and then also how to serve other people. I think these two are actually the same thing. So, <clears throat> maybe Master Ma is very thin and emaciated. Maybe his skin is drying out. And maybe his feet are cold. And he gets asked this question. What's it like for you? How's it going for you? Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Uh... There's a footnote in this story that in old scriptures, the sun-faced Buddha was a Buddha that was alive for 1,800 years. And the moon-faced Buddha is a Buddha that's alive for only one day and one night. So, when we say Buddha, this is not referring to the historical Gotama Buddha. The word Buddha means to be awake. So, there is the possibility of awakening to something that's 1,800 years old. Some states of mind are like this. They're 1,800 years old. And then, there's also the possibility of waking up to something that only lasts for a very, very short time. And our life mostly feels like that, doesn't it? <coughs> when you're sitting still and you're watching all the ways that you function, is anybody looking at this? Some patterns are 1,800 years old. And some patterns only last like this. Car goes by, that's it. And some patterns seem to just go on and on and on. And it's like that in our relational lives. Sometimes we have a difficulty with somebody we love, and we're able to talk about it and heal it, and the difficulty lasts one day and one night. And sometimes we have a difficulty, and it's just there for the whole relationship, because it's the way two personalities constellate reactivity in one another. And both are always true it seems. So maybe in this place of dying, Master Ma can feel both things. Maybe he can feel the joy that's 1,800 years old of the fact that uh, he's alive. Because when you're dying, you're not really dying. You're alive. And then also, for most people when they die, there's lots of pain. There's physical pain, there could be psychological pain, and there could be a kind of pain that we don't understand. That's the pain of seeing the whole project of me 
come to an end. This whole business of me that we've been so focused on, and it means so much and it's so important, we have no idea what's going to happen when we take our last breath. So there's going to be some fear maybe and some pain. But maybe none of this is about death. Maybe it's actually about right now for all of us is that you have things in your life that bring you great peace and you have strength. And you also have the moon face Buddha, which is our fragility and our vulnerability and the places where we're not so robust or resilient. But the point of this story that we can't forget is it's sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, which is that you can be in the sun face and be totally awake. And in your moon face and be totally awake. So there can be laughter and you can be completely awake. And there can be tears and you will be completely awake. So there can be a Buddha in every single state. Yeah? Every state. We can see Buddha in things. We can see that everything is awake, even walls and floors. And we can see that other people are awake, even though sometimes their judgments clouded and their habits are so violent, or all they can do is make a mess of their life. Do you know people like this? Every decision they make is a bad decision, every single one. And you can predict the next decision they're going to make. And still, uh, you have to love them because they're doing the best that they can in those conditions. And we have a tendency to criticize and to blame more than praising. But I think our practice can teach us over time that we can praise everything all the time. Whenever I think of the word praise, I think of prayer. But all the time, we can be grateful for this very fragile and precious life that we have. So when you're reactive, it's very hard to get uh, deeper into your ancient habits. (coughs) I notice this a lot. Uh, in my own life because I travel quite a lot, some of you know. And uh, so I live in a very quiet place uh, these days. I live on an island in the middle of nowhere. And, um, which actually, I don't feel that way. I feel like it's in the middle of everywhere. (laughs) And um, when I get home, it always takes me like two or three days to kind of get back into the rhythm of the family. Um, But then I notice that after a few days, if I have a rhythm when I get home, and I mean a rhythm like I wake up at a certain time, I eat my meals at a certain time, meditate, you know, I have a rhythm, I find that then um, my dreams change. And it takes a few days. Like the first few days, I'm just trying to sleep well, you know. There's not so much attention always to my inner life. It's more like cleaning Lego (laughs) and the kitchen. (laughs) And... um, then I notice it takes a few days of having a rhythm for my dreams to start to change. And then I feel like I'm back in my life again. Because sometimes we have to give so much space to our experience in order to start to comb through the superficial and be more connected to the deep. But the thing is, as soon as you have empty space around, it's not necessarily peaceful. Because once there's some peace, then 
new habits will always emerge. And the point of our practice is when habits emerge, we have enough non-reactivity that we can see them without adding too much drama, which is, I think, what I talked about last night. There's always going to be drama. Drama is at the nexus of relationship. Always there will be drama. But we can catch drama as it's unfolding and use our practice to not add more drama <coughs> on top of the drama because then all the shit you have to deal with mostly later on tends to be from what you added to the drama. Do you notice that? You had some difficult time and then you made some stupid decisions and then for years you have to pick up all the pieces from the stupid decision. Just because you didn't have enough distance when the difficulty was emerging that you could see what's emerging, you were just totally <coughs> identified with it. So you might have a really good diet. Maybe in the 90s you were vegan. And then you went raw. And now you're just happy to have food. <laughs> and appreciative that people will offer food to you. And the most important thing is uh, your gratitude that you can eat. And then you don't have to think about yourself all the time so much. And then you have to exercise. It's important. You have to know how to breathe. You have to have time outdoors, away from technology. All these things are really important. But still, even if you have all those things, there's no solution for old age and death. There's no solution. There's no way out of it. We all have an expiry date. We have no idea when it's going to be. Most of us are going to get ill. And so if you want to learn how to live your life, <coughs> you have to learn how to live your life right now. And it doesn't matter if you're 18 years old. Who's the oldest person? We know the youngest person. What's your name again? Who's the, young, who's the oldest? Who thinks they're the oldest? You think you're the oldest? You think you're the oldest? How, how old are you? 72. So 72 and 18. That's a pretty good, pretty good one. So I'm sure that wherever you are in the spectrum, it actually ha it makes no difference. You have to experience your life in this breath and not hold on to this breath either. And it's just as important when you're 72 as when you're 42 or 32 or 18. So we need to incorporate suffering, uh, impermanence, comedy, and tragedy in the basic understanding we have of our life. But in a culture that doesn't like to talk about old age, in a culture where probably most people have not been with a dead person or have not seen someone die. I mean, think about most of your family members who've died. Probably only some of them you saw as they were dying. But mostly we hide death and we hide old age. And these things tend to be feared so much at all costs. So we need to explore the Buddha side of the sun and the moon. So uh, there was a great uh, teacher who lived uh, until the early 70s named Shinru Suzuki at San Francisco, uh, Japanese. And um, he has a few books. But my favorite thing is 
there is an archive of all of his teachings that are not edited. And I love reading them because he didn't have good English, so he makes up weird phrases. Um, so he gave a teaching on this uh, story of Master Ma. And I wanted to read a few excerpts from what he says, because it's very beautiful. Uh, it's also important to know that when he gave this talk, uh, he was also just about to die from cancer, but didn't know it yet. So that's an you know, important background, I think. Here's what he says. We may believe that meditation will make us physically strong and mentally healthy, but a healthy mind is not just a healthy mind in the usual sense. And a weak body is not just a weak body. Whether it's weak or strong, when weakness or strength is based on truth or Buddha nature, then that is a healthy body and a healthy mind. So, when I'm sick, I'm like the moon-faced Buddha. And when I'm healthy, I'm like the sun-faced Buddha. But neither the sun-faced Buddha or the moon-faced Buddha really has any special meaning. Whether I'm ill or healthy, I'm always practicing meditation. Isn't that beautiful? There's no difference. Even though I'm in bed, I am Buddha. So don't worry about my health. Do you feel that way? Or when you're in bed, are you just a complete disaster? <laughs> Mostly a complete disaster. Mm. When I'm sick, I'm like the moon-faced Buddha. When I'm healthy, I'm like the sun-faced Buddha. But neither the sun-faced Buddha or the moon-faced Buddha has any special meaning. Because when you hear those terms, don't you go, oh yeah, there's some special. Whether I'm ill or healthy, I'm still practicing meditation. There's no difference. Even though I'm in bed, I am Buddha. So don't worry about my health. This is quite simple. It's actually that we're doing every day. The difference is that whatever happens to Master Ma, he can accept things as it is as it happens. This is one of those amazing phrases that you can only create when you don't speak English as a first language. <laughs> Do you want to hear the phrase again? Listen. He can accept things as it is, as it happens. Things as it is. So this is a famous phrase of Shinru Suzuki. Accept things as it is. But we cannot accept everything. Some things we think is good, we may accept. But something which we dislike, we don't accept. And then we compare things. We say, he is a true master, but this other one is not. Or he is a good student, but I am not. That kind of understanding is very usual, but actually, you cannot say it's for sure. <laughs> when I was in Japan, I had some Zen students. This, he's still speaking. Some of them were very rich and influential people, and others were students and carpenters and people who did other kinds of work. In Japan, we still respect or treat some people like a mayor or a teacher in a different way. We have a special way of speaking to them. But I always told my students, if you are a student, you should forget about your position, your work, and your title. Otherwise, we cannot practice in the true sense. So in meditation, you should hear big noise or small noise and not be bothered by it. This may seem impossible, especially for the beginner, because the moment you hear it, some reaction follows. But if you practice, if you continuously just accept things as it is, eventually you can do it. The way you can do it is to be concentrated on your posture and your breathing. So, when we were sitting earlier, did you hear all the noise outside? Did you have reactions? But then, yeah. It's West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm.
Yeah. There was a phrase painted in calligraphy on the wall that says something like, um, peacefulness is not about escaping from chaos, it's about developing a calm center in the midst of chaos. Yeah. And so, um, that was a great opportunity to do it. Totally. Yeah. And it's like that every time you sit. You think, okay, here we are, we're in the suburbs, it's going to be so quiet, we're in this amazing center, there's trees blooming, and then something will interrupt it. So then, that's what you work with. In the same way that we could be in the quietest place, with no sounds, so quiet, and you will have some itch, or some discomfort in your knee, or a foot falling asleep, and you will become obsessed and compulsive around it. So, so as part of the practice, though, I mean, you come and you go, and you, you know, you feel something that you, that's distracting you, and then the work is to come back to your breath. I mean, I guess eventually you get to a place where you are able to separate from distractions that might have drawn you away before. Well, the distractions don't stop, but um, they're just not distractions. It's just what's happening. So the thing I like most about the story about Master Ma is the thing he's let go of is his identity. That here he is, this very powerful teacher, really strong, hundred successors. Can you picture this person? Can you picture somebody like this, you know? And he's unwell, and he's allowing himself to be completely unwell. And when he's moon-faced, he's moon-faced. And when he's sun-faced, he's sun-faced. So we could say that there is a loneliness Buddha, and a divorce Buddha, and a peace Buddha, and all of these different mental states, but they're mental states where we can enter them, we can be one with them, we cannot hold on to them so that they're not distractions. So that when something big happens in your life, it's not a distraction and a detour. It's just the path now of what you need to work with. And that's why working with your body is so powerful. <coughs> because if you really work with your body, you start to experience your body as just a body and not your body. It's not a certain a type of body that you need to have. It's what the Buddha calls the body in the body. Feeling your body in your body. Not knowing your body from outside of your body. In our house, one of the things that we did uh, is we don't, we don't have mirrors in our bathroom. Mm -hmm. So this is very fun practice. So then you just don't look at yourself so much. It's really helpful. So then uh, you can feel if you need to shave or if you have something in your teeth, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> but you just don't look as much in the mirror. You should try this sometime for a couple days. Or you know what another good practice is? is You replace the mirror in your bathroom with a tiny mirror <laughs> that's just about this big, like the size of your palm. So that when you look in the mirror, you can just see enough to make sure everything's okay, presentable. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy makeup. If I was a woman, I would totally wear makeup. <laughs> It's so fun to paint yourself and to be a different kind of person sometimes. Well, I don't need to be a woman, but if I was a woman, then probably I would do this because it can be great fun to decorate yourself, especially if you don't take it so seriously, you know. It's just decoration. It's not who you are. So if you're going to do that, to try and do that as a practice when you wear makeup, to practice your makeup, and not to wear the same makeup all the time. To try different makeup. 
If you're a man, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, let me sum up so far. The trick to see these different states as awakened experiences is to lower your expectations. We have so many expectations, so many expectations. We have so many expectations of ourselves and we have so many expectations of other people. And usually we get it wrong. And usually we learn the hard way, especially with kids. You think that there's a way that your kid is gifted, so you do a million things out of love to make sure that they have every opportunity that you can possibly give them. But you don't see the expectations you set up and your intentions, because naturally you want them to be really good at all those things. And maybe lots of those things are just your own unlived life that you hope they'll carry on because you couldn't. And anyways, they hit a certain age where there's not much you can do anymore to influence them. Except model a life with not so much expectation. And then, probably, you'll end up being friends with your kids when they get older. Because they don't feel like you need them to be a certain way all the time. Or maybe you need to do this with yourself. Maybe you need yourself to be a certain way all the time. And then over time, it's very oppressive to constantly make yourself into one version of yourself all the time. So, because life never happens according to our plans, you notice this? <laughs> then we need to lower our expectations. Sometimes we'll be surprised that things are going really well. So, if you have an expectation that mostly things are not going to go well, then it'll be hard to feel when things are going really well. Maybe sometimes we're so used to seeing the negative that when things are actually going pretty good, we don't even know how to do it. The Dalai Lama says something very interesting about meditation practice. He says, once you start to be able to concentrate, it can be very disorienting because you don't recognize yourself. Once you start sitting, um, as you start to get more concentrated, sometimes it's a little strange because uh, you feel really uh, content and deep, but you, you don't recognize the one who's deep and contented because you've been so far away from her for so long. Can you feel this today? Does everybody feel how when we were sitting, you just start to chill out a little bit? Okay, you're a little bit uncomfortable when you sit, that's true. That happens for the first year. But so what? You're uncomfortable in your life all the time. <laughs> but mostly you don't work with it. So your meditation practice in your life are exactly the same thing. And when you sit, your life just comes to you. Your breath comes to you. When you do walking meditation, it's like this. If you really walk, you'll feel that as you're putting your foot down, the ground is coming up to meet your foot. Which is like the most loving thing for the earth. That the earth comes up and meets your foot every single time. It's like this if you're at home and you need something from the store and you walk to the store. As you're walking to the store, you're just fully in the experience of walking, and then you start to feel that the store is coming towards you. <laughs> and they both work together at the same time. Or if you're pregnant, you're pregnant and it feels like, oh, I'm working towards this one day when there's going to be labor. But as you're in the nine months, the baby is growing towards your life. And maybe if you just settle a little bit, 
you start to feel that the baby is coming to you. <laughs> so even in our activity, we're doing meditation practice. When we're walking, when we're driving, I love walking meditation. And I'm a late convert, because when I first learned walking meditation, I thought it was the most dull thing ever. And now I just love walking meditation. Michael, yeah. have you um, seen any variations of the walking meditation? Tons. Where the arms are moving? All kinds of variations. I used to go do one where we were moving our arms, and I didn't uh-huh. know exactly how. Yeah. Um, and I had an amazing experience. I've had a lot of injuries and success, yeah. and I'm just sort of an active person sitting still for all kinds of time. Yeah. Yeah. Naturally. And um, it was the first time I was. Um, Introduced to the idea of just not reacting to yeah. the uncomfortable and switching. When you're sitting. Yeah, when you're yeah. sitting. When you're sitting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my mind was going, but that doesn't make sense. You're supposed to. You're supposed to. Exactly. I, I just went with it. Yeah. And was surprised um, later to notice that the uh, idea of or whatever had yeah. just gone away on its own. And then um, at the end of the moving meditation, I, I had an incredible sense. I had gone there in a lot of pain, physical pain, recent yeah. injury, overdoing something. And by the end of that, I had incredible lightness. <coughs> yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And it was an epiphany uh, because I used to think it would take a lot of hard work uh-huh. to recover from that kind of an injury. Yeah. Chiropractic and lots of hot soaps and yeah. and all this. And, uh, so, but it was it was um, the walking with the arms moving uh-huh. that. Um, I found very more freeing. Well, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. <laughs> so just do it. And uh, it's very important with meditation that it's not about whether you have a good feeling about it or not. So if your practice is just about how you feel, you'll never really go very deep in your practice. And then why did you choose um, this hand position today instead of some of the others you've been introduced to? Well, I won't answer that for you. You do it for a year. Do walking meditation like this for a year, and then we'll talk about it. And just try it on. Because your practice has to be based on your intention to look at what's really happening. If your practice is just based on how you feel, you won't really develop a good rhythm of practice. Because on days where you don't feel like practice, you won't practice. And on days you feel like doing something else, you'll just do it the way you feel like doing it. But the thing is, is if you have a form that you uh, trust only because maybe a teacher you trust does it or it's old, then Try embodying that, but for a while, like 20 years maybe, and then see uh, how it feels. So I'm not saying that this is the best way to hold your hands. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm not uh, fascist in that way, but uh, this is very powerful. But you have to give a little bit of time to start to embody it. So, um, don't worry about whether you like it or not, like it or you don't like it. Just like sitting, like many of you, probably most of you who your most of your practice is a body practice, you probably don't love sitting meditation because you're used to doing certain things with the sensations in your body. Well, we're not doing that. And when you sit, you should just sit completely still and don't move. Don't move. And I guarantee there's a whole layer of exploration there. Because I've been through it too. Yeah. How long did we sit for today on the first round of sitting down? Just to that was an hour. The first sit? Well, yeah, when we were first sitting before we went out for the... Yeah, we sat for an hour. Yeah. And then we walked for an hour. No, we didn't. And then we sat for an hour. <laughs> 
Next question. <laughs> How often do you lie to the class? <laughs> so we need to imagine a society where praise and blame are not the only currency. Uh, where violence and competitiveness and reactivity are not the only waters that we swim in. So when you come in here and you sit still, it's not just for you. You become a different kind of citizen. You become a different friend, lover, parent, because you're bringing to your life uh, nonviolence. Today we sat around 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I think, the first sit. Tomorrow we'll sit a little longer and um, walk a little longer. And then we get the hang of this rhythm, this practice. So, um, when there is a story like this, like the Master Ma story, there's always something in the text called a pointer, which is a little poem or a verse to help you get oriented in terms of what to explore in the story. The story, by the way, if you wanted to look it up, is from a text called the Blue Cliff Record, and it's case number three. Um, so I'm going to read the pointer, and then we'll start to sum up. This way will do, not this way will also do. This is too diffuse. This way won't do, now this way won't do either. This is too cut off. Not treading these two paths, what way might be right? Is that confusing? Do you want to hear it again? Listen to the first line. This way will do. So imagine you're in a mental state and you say to yourself, oh, this will do. Or you say, uh, not doing this, that'll do. This verse is saying, that's too diffuse. It's too superficial. Oh, this will do, that'll do. Do you guys know this mental state? That's ah, okay. Deal with it. Then he says, uh, this way won't do. And that way won't do either. That's too cut off. It's too sharp. So on the one hand, it's like, oh yeah, whatever. On the other hand, it's like, no, I can't accept that. And he's saying one side is too diffuse and one side's too sharp. So that's not the way of practice. The way of practice is we're not going to take either of those roots. The root that's diffuse, which is a little bit dissociated, right? So do you know what do you know what I mean by that? Like you can sit in a mental state that's difficult and just like find a way to dissociate a little bit. Like to not really be there. So maybe you're feeling some discomfort in your body but you're fantasizing about something else. Right? That's too diffuse. It's not being awake. And then the other side is you saying, this is not, this is not for me. I don't really like how this feels. I'm not going to do this again. Or maybe a more subtle version of that is, I can't accept this. Have you ever said this? I can't accept this. But what that's really saying is that um, you can't allow this into your experience. But the truth is, is that the only way we can be free of our old habits is to totally accept them. So when something's difficult, if we can't accept it, we can't be free of it. Because we can't let it in. So you might say, there is this uh, system of 
uh, well, let me think of a good example. You have a, someone in your life who um, causes you a lot of harm. And you might say, I can't accept this. I'm never talking to him again. And you never talk to him again. But actually, then you build up walls in yourself. And even though you never talk to them again, probably they haunt you. And you dream about them all the time. <laughs> but maybe there's another path that's not so sharp. And the path is, when I'm with that person, it is so painful and so repetitive that I don't want to ever be with them again. And you're not. But in your heart, you also say, and I'm going to allow in whatever feelings I have about this. And the complicated part of allowing in whatever feelings you have is they're always ambivalent. Because wherever you have hate, you also have love. And wherever you love, you also have hate. Because we always have ambivalent feelings towards the objects that we desire. If somebody can satisfy you, they can frustrate you. And if somebody can frustrate you, they also can satisfy you. And this is just what it's like to be a human being. So if you're too sharp and, you're say, and you say, I just hate them, the fact is your dream life will show you what you really feel. Which is you'll hate someone and then you'll have dreams of going on long walks with them. <laughs> so not treading these two paths, what way might be right? We can't be too strict and we have to be really friendly. There's no other way. So, this is going to be the new hip thing. Friendliness. You know they say, like, everybody should have one black dress? Or something like that. <laughs> a black skirt? Is it a skirt or a dress? A dress? A little black dress, thank you. So... I don't have mine yet. First I'm going to do the makeup and then <laughs> and the dress. But anyways. Yeah. But maybe, so maybe kindness is going to be the new black dress. Everybody should have some kindness really close by. So that you're not too sharp. And you're also not sleepy. And this is the path of a yogi. Yogini, which is um, not to always fall into the habits of being too whatever or too sharp. And I hope this will be your homework tonight. That when you go home tonight, you'll explore in your communication, in your relationship with your own experience, where you can be just too sharp and too quick to go no. Or also, uh, too lazy and be like, I don't really want to feel that. <laughs> now, I would rather have a beer. A gluten-free uh, beer. <laughs> That's local. So, let's have... Uh, I'll keep going tomorrow, but uh, I just want to see if there's some questions and we can have some discussion before we finish. Yeah. Um, Helen. I have a question yeah. regarding what you just said. In your um, new book, I love the part where you talk about um, what is my practice, whatever is my intention. Uh -huh. And I think saying that every day yeah. is the tone for finding the balance between the sharpness and the, mm -hmm. the other yeah. end of the spectrum. I yeah. know it's really helped me yeah. sort of come back to grounding very early in the morning. So yeah. I just sort of carry that all day. Yeah. Yeah, I often think that the heart of the practice that we're doing is uh, responsiveness and being able to really respond to what's happening in any moment. And um, if the response is not good, then to let it go and give another response. So uh, this is what we're training in the asana practice, what we're training for in meditation. It looks passive, 
somebody wa looked at this room from outside, the first thing they say is, I'd rather swim, be swimming. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily true, actually. But the second thing is they'd say, oh, you know, everybody's so passive. But they don't know that actually inside, um, there's a lot of work you're doing to really stay there and learn how to respond to what's showing up. Yeah. So yeah, last night you talked about sitting for 30 minutes. Uh-huh. Um, that apparently is really hard for my head. I found out today. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming with practice, mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's, is there, is there a grace for like ease into it, 15 minutes, adjust. The next yep. week, 20 minutes, yep. build into yep. it. Yep. And play with different kinds of posture. Um, one of the things that uh, I do when I teach teenagers is we, um, when we sit for 30 minutes, uh, halfway through I ring a bell, and they have one minute to stretch, move around, do whatever they need to do, then I ring the bell again, and then we keep going. So there's like this one minute break in the middle where they can just stop and just do whatever they need to do. The funny thing is, everybody does that for the first few sessions, and then after a while, they half the group stops doing it. They're just like, oh, I don't need to really get that out of me. I just keep going. <laughs> so it's interesting the way the physical sensations that we deem uncomfortable have a whole mental story attached to them. Um, so I don't get very strict. I just say 30 minutes is not such a long time. But if you're really uncomfortable, <laughs> just shift. Do it quickly. Do it mindfully. And then... Um, see what that's like. Yes? Can I digress back to the Mastama story? The yeah, it's not digressing. It's it was really interesting to me because the whole concept of asking the Master how he felt that day, how he yeah. was going to die, but giving him the opportunity, or anyone the opportunity, mm -hmm. to say how they felt in that experience, I yeah. think is something that we miss on an exponential basis every day. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe it's because I work with people who die. Yeah. And people are really uncomfortable talking about how somebody feels when they're uh -huh. gonna die. Yeah. Because that they're gonna die. Yeah. And there's no kind of thought about what that means to them, what that doesn't mean to them, mm -hmm. or the fact that somebody would have enough compassion to say, How's your health today? Mm -hmm. Even though it may just suck. Mm -hmm. um, nobody asks, what's that like? Or nobody touches them. Yeah. How does that feel? So it was just interesting. Yeah. It, because you brought up the comment, that, or the question, that, wow, I, I can't remember exactly what you said, but can you believe he asked them that? Like, uh -huh. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because so much of what we miss is not asking. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think this is just limited to people who are dying. No, I think I this is this is yeah. But we, if, but we, if we can't get comfortable in any of that, mm -hmm. how can we move on to be able to ask that question in the yeah. setting of yeah. death and dying, which is huge because people don't have those conversations exactly. when they're well, so yeah. they don't have they can't have those conversations when yeah. they're still I don't know, it just struck, it just struck me. Like I've just been focusing on that throughout the rest of the yeah. conversation. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago I taught a workshop and um, uh, in the afternoons we uh, planned our funerals. Yeah. So we spent two days working on uh, what, how we want our funeral to go, how we might want people to relate to us uh, when we're dying, uh, some things that would be important for our family to know that they might never know. Um, and uh, it was a really good practice. And then people photocopied this and gave it to their family. Yeah. There was a great post I saw this on Facebook and it came through some weird palliative care channel, but yeah. this woman wrote her obituary. Yeah. It was hysterical and it was fun, and the family was just so relieved. Yeah. Nobody knew what to do. Yeah. So. That's why there's no difference between our own inner kindness and responsiveness to our experience and how that immediately translates with other people. 
because when you have some kindness towards your experience, it's how you feel is something you can relate to and you know. And then you're more tuned into it with other people. Because you care. You care. So thank you for that. Somebody else? Comment, question? I have a question. You want to go first? And then <coughs> can go first. Sure. Um, Just speak loud so everybody can hear you. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, in my sitting practice and also getting back to an Ashtanga practice, uh -huh. um, because there, I feel like there is a little more room in the structure yeah. to really see things. Uh -huh. um, there are themes to my storylines. Yeah. <coughs> when, when should that kind of come into relevance for like later contemplation, or is it just continuing to work with storyline and then back to breath? Yeah, so in the meditation practice, you're probably not going to do much investigation of the nature of the story line. Mm -hmm. Except you might say to yourself, um, especially if you keep a journal after you sit, you might write down once in a while, just like some themes. <laughs> and then you might start to see, whoa, there's only like four themes <laughs> that I ruminate on. And then that would be what you'd explore outside of the meditation practice with a teacher or a therapist, or you might study and learn about that topic. So you can start to recognize the roots of those patterns and how they play out in different scenarios and, and get really educated about those patterns. And then maybe help people who have those patterns so that they don't haunt you. Um, because, you know, rumination is exhausting totally exhausting so it's good to know that there's like only four or five <coughs> DVDs in your mind and they just new content maybe but it just plays the same pattern there's the one about money the one about sex the one about your parents and the one about your future <laughs> do you guys have all these no. the one about health But in the meditation, you don't have to work on that. Okay. Um, my meditation practice is mantra based. Uh -huh. So today was like a new experience. Yeah. A very interesting experience uh -huh. because I wasn't aware that through focusing on the inhale or the exhale, I could actually bring my attention pretty quickly back yeah. when it started to go down the elevator yeah. road. But I think the long-term practice uh -huh. of meditation, uh, I've been able to own a lot of my feelings of anger mm -hmm. and sadness mm -hmm. or whatever, joy and happiness. Mm -hmm. And in personal situations, it seems like when I get with that person that I've got the big drama over, that mm -hmm. I actually own the feelings mm -hmm. of, that I'm more centered with that person mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. can be more compassionate in yep. that moment yep. and more of a friend. Yeah. And it seems like the things that come out of my mouth, like where did they come from? Because three hours ago I could have yeah. snatched them all. Yeah. You know, all yeah. It's just not yeah. there. You're a little so, calmer. Yeah. Yeah, so for it's sure. A, a That's very great. Profound practice yeah. of meditation. Yeah. Even though today was new. Good. Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good to learn new things. Yeah. yeah. You know, mantra meditation is not that different from the breath. Um, but uh, what's going to start to happen with our meditation on the breath is that like when you get concentrated and you get calm, you get calm. But then, there's stuff to do. So then, we're going to take that calmness and then we're going to start investigating it. And we're going to look more closely once we're calm. So that's when the techniques really start unfolding and becoming really interesting. Which is how you then investigate what your experience is. So the goal is not to be calm. You want to get some stability, but then once you're stable, then you start looking more closely and investigating the experience. Like, is this permanent? Or is this mine? Or who is this happening to? 
Or who's breathing? And then things get really interesting. So, one more comment or question, and then it's bedtime, sort of. <laughs> I have a question. Okay. So, sometimes um, a lot of visualizations come up about the breath. Yeah. And is that considered a storyline? Yes. <laughs> so, visualizations and images are really interesting. For some people, sometimes it's worth going down that road. But for most people, most of the time, they're just picture thoughts. And as seductive as they might be, just don't get into it. Because they seem cool. And that can be really uh, seductive. And then like you're gone in picture world. It's just another distraction. So. That you can work with this structure of your mind that constantly creates a me out of the fabric of experience. And you can really see this in the asana practice, where we're creating a me out of the fabric of sensations that are occurring. And you can see this in the meditation practice, where we're creating a me out of the stories that are occurring. The same with images. They still feel like they're happening to me. And consciousness is really interesting this way because during the day we're funneling everything through me. And then we have a break from it in this liminal space. The liminal space that we get to a little bit in meditation practice and we also get into that space when we're falling asleep. (laughs) We can sustain it in meditation. But there's this space between waking and sleeping where we're almost dreaming where there's a suspension of the me perspective. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a really interesting space. And then, as soon as you go unconscious and start dreaming, you're the main character. And the me's back again. So once you're dreaming, it's all over. Because you're the main character of the dream. So the technique for yogis is Once you're asleep and you're dreaming, you see that you're functioning the same way you do when you're awake. When you're awake, the objects of consciousness are the stimulus outside. But when you're sleeping, the objects of consciousness are the image-based stimulus inside, so to speak. So when you're sleeping, and then you become aware that you're sleeping, but you're still asleep. You start to cultivate that. So this is called dream yoga. So you're sleeping, but you're aware that you're dreaming even though you're still asleep. And then while you're dreaming, you notice the patterns of your mind while you're sleeping, and you don't hold on to them. So that then you're meditating while you're sleeping even though you're sleeping. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And the only time that the waking or dreaming structures don't seem to be there are during meditation or during this little in-between space where you're just starting to fall asleep. There's this loss of a sense of me. But as as soon as the dream comes, you're back again. And in dreams, there's always two versions of you. There's either the dream is happening from your experience, or, so it's still your experience, or you're outside looking down or looking at yourself in the center of the dream. So this is what we're going to explore more tomorrow. I feel like we've covered a lot. So let me sum up and just say, um, Master Ma was unwell. The temple superintendent came to him and said, how are you feeling these days? And Master Ma said, sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. 
It's really easy to understand, but it's a very hard story to embody. So I encourage you tonight, with so much kindness and interest, to explore this story. So you don't leave here with a story, but you leave here seeing that that's actually a practice that you can do. Every mind state can be a mind state of awakening. If the word Buddha doesn't relate to you so much, just say awake. <coughs> awake in the sun. 1800 years. And awake for those short states. That sometimes are actually the most difficult, but they're just short. It's okay. And both states are Buddha. In other words, even the sun lights up the moon. You wouldn't see the moon without the sun. So we need both. So, thank you very much. I believe that Helen wants to take a photograph, a group photograph.